Welcome to the Fatal Conceits podcast, dear listeners, show about money, markets, mobs, and manias, not necessarily in that order. My name is Joel Bowman. I'm coming to you from the literal and geographical end of the world down here in Argentina. If this is your first time listening, please head over to our Substack page. That's Bonner Private Research at Substack or rather .substack.com where you can check out hundreds of articles on everything from high finance to lowly politics and also plenty of research reports and market notes, many of which are penned by my guest today, Mr. Dan Denning. Dan, welcome from the high plains of Laramie. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. It's nice to see you again. <laughs> well, I didn't know if you know this, Dan, but I just in preparation for our discussion today, the last time that you and I recorded a conversation for this show was at the very end of March, which would have been now in retrospect, looks a bit like a bear market trap for those of us uh, who are following the money off the March lows. Uh, and I just went back and did the math since our last uh, recorded discussion. The Dow is down nine, the S&P is down 13%, the NASDAQ almost 20%. Uh, and during that conversation, you were warning that the generals may be beating a disorderly retreat uh, that turns out to have been a very prescient call. Uh, what do you? What did you know then that uh, that others were not predicting? And where do we lay now? Yeah, that's. I, I remember that conversation, and I guess to be fair, to be fair minded, I. I probably didn't say anything different then than I haven't been saying for the last three <laughs> to five years. So I don't want to be one of those guys that says, see, I told you so. And, uh -huh. and people say, yeah, but you know, it's the whole stop clock thing. But I, I would say that, that um, the overall uh, thesis for, for Bill and I and Tom Dyson at Bonner private research, and it has been now for, well, for a while is that, um, if you looked at all the traditional metrics for valuation in the stock market, not at the company level, but at the market level, mm -hmm. they all were historically massively overvalued. So the price to sales ratio on the S&P 500 was over three. The market cap to GDP ratio for U.S. stocks was over, uh, it may have been over 200 at one point on the NASDAQ, but it was certainly well over the historic average of 80 and was closer to 150. And uh, on an earnings basis, too, if you looked at uh, Robert Schiller's cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, stocks were expensive. And then there were other indicators that we use and have used over the years, like margin debt, that show that you know when liquidity is available and interest rates are low, uh, stock prices are very high, and risk or growth assets become, as they say on Wall Street, elevated. So we've been saying that for a long time, and they just kept going up. So that, that didn't make them less risky, though. So I, th mm -hmm. I think what happened and what's happened since you and I last talked uh, is, one, there's been a discussion of higher interest rates, which definitely affects the pricing of growth assets. But, but more broadly, people have been thinking about the future and saying, well, maybe the next 10 years are not going to be as great as the last 10. And um, that shift in sentiment has been coupled with changes in liquidity. And that's probably the big thing for investors to realize is that in a when liquidity starts to uh, thin out or dry up in a, in financial markets, 
then it generally means lower prices for everything. And that means not just growth stocks, but most stocks and also government bonds and um, also to some degree uh, gold. Oil seems to be the exception, which we can talk about later yep. if you want. But um, yeah, I think uh, at the top end, the generals were the, the best performing, highest flying growth stocks of the last 10 years, especially since you know you could go all the way back to 2009, but really since March of 2020 when the S&P doubled and uh, the Fed got extremely accommodative. We said those stocks, and by by those generals, I mean Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook had already fallen, Meta, Netflix had already fallen, Peloton, these other outlier stocks, they weren't very large, but they were, you know, they were the most overvalued. So we think there's still more to go, but it doesn't go in a straight line and um, our central bankers aren't powerless. So it's going to be an interesting summer for sure. Well, let's talk about uh, our, our dear leaders in the central bank. Uh, then um, your uh, your pal, uh, Mr. Powell, has been uh, recently reappointed as uh, as Fed head in chief. Uh, is this is this um, just a kind of exercise in that old definition of insanity, just repeating the same thing and expecting a different result, or is there? Something more sinister at work here. I mean, it, it, it's a little bit of a toss-up. It seems between, um, you know, something, some kind of manufactured breakdown in the old monetary system. If you want to kind of get conspiratorial, or um, is this just people who really, you know, down to their core, believe that what they're doing is, uh, you know, is is a competent handling of the economy and that they can, you know turn dials and pull levers and uh, and get it going uh, in the way that they think that they can. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny you ask that question because I was just reviewing Tom Dyson's weekly update, which he publishes on Wednesdays, and and uh, he sends his, his uh, draft to me, and I just give him my reaction and some thoughts and observations. And, it, you know, it's, it reminds me of um, an old <laughs> – when I used to go to the barbershop in uh, Estes Park, Colorado, it was – run by an old friend, family friend. And I got to know him over many years because I first went there when I was like five and I kept going all the way through um, my adult life until he passed away. But he was a member of the John Birch Society. He carried a copy of the Constitution in his front pocket. And we always talked about politics. And we, the, the one point I always made with him, which, which wasn't original to me, was it's hard to imagine a conspiracy of 3,000 people uh, being effective and efficient when it comes from the same organization that can't deliver the mail, right. like how's, <laughs> how's the government capable of masterminding, like or faking a moon landing, or doing this or that, or killing Kennedy, and at the same time they're just ruthlessly incompetent at other stuff. But but with respect to monetary policy, I think there's three different constituencies that the Fed Federal Reserve works for. One is political, one is financial, and one is institutional. So if you look at all three. The institutional constituency are the 400 PhDs or, or economists that have only ever worked for the Fed and whose livelihoods depend on providing research that justifies the government's policies or the, the central bank's policies. So in this case, I think there's a group of people that actually believe they know what they're doing and that it's their job to provide the intellectual justification for zero interest rate policy 
for quantitative easing or for the latest moniker, which is the reverse wealth effect. That if if we engineer stock prices lower in a kind of controlled, organized demolition, then people will feel less wealthy and that will moderate inflation. Sounds absurd. And there's I, I haven't read a lot of the research that purportedly justifies that policy, but I think in that case, they probably genuinely believe that lower stock prices will, in some indirect way, lower inflation in the United States, which is, of course, one of the mandates of the Federal Reserve is price stability. They're wrong. And they're probably, they're not stupid people, but they just have existed in a bubble for a long time. They're completely divorced from the real world. Uh, and they have no idea. As, as Jim Cramer famously said in 2009 in his meltdown on CNBC, <laughs> I have no idea. These You're people right. have no idea. <laughs> so that's the one constitutable moment. That's one of the great moments of all time. Uh, one of the, uh, the two other. <laughs> well, the other actually that that's the second second constituency is the Fed's second constituency is the financial markets. It's bankers. Remember, it's a it's a private institution that was given the license by Congress or the authority by Congress to manage the nation's money. And it's run and owned by banks. Mm. So to that extent, their job is to run, manage the dollar and manage financial markets so that banks don't blow up. And, you know, we could talk all day about what's been going on in the last 10 years, but that's part of what Powell's doing is saying, look, unless there's a huge problem uh, in the credit markets where a hedge fund blows up or a systemically important bank uh, is in trouble because of assets that it holds, then we're ha- we don't mind lower stock prices and high inflation because we don't work for the American people. We don't care right. about inflation. We work for the bankers. So that's the second constituency. The third, uh, so the second is Wall Street. The third is 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 Washington D.C. It's the elected officials, and I think that was interesting this week that. Um, President Biden, in one of his press conferences, mentioned that it was the Fed's job to control inflation. And inflation makes all of the people running for re-election in Washington very nervous right now. Mm. Because in the real world, where people are paying $4.50 a gallon for gas, and that's just the national average, it's it's higher in in California and other places, and where their uh, food costs are going up, and where rent is expensive and where the 30-year mortgage rate is now back over 5% and house prices look like they've peaked, then and you know, a pocketbook issue is traditionally a much more motivating force for voter turnout than a social issue or <laughs> or even a foreign conflict. So I think the political constituency that the Fed serves endorsed Jay Powell overwhelmingly and said. Please stay in charge because what we we want you to do is we want you to hold interest rates below the rate of inflation so that we can continue to run these massive deficits without um, a real penalty on the dollar or without a sell-off in the U.S. bond market. So Powell answers to those people in the sense that, uh, you know, the Fed is the central bank of the United States government and the United States government has $30 trillion in debt is supporting a war overseas um, and everything but a declaration and uh, now realizes that from a demographic point of view, they're going to have to spend trillions more in the coming years on, on an older population 
that hasn't gotten back to work and um, that has learned to expect money from the federal government. So it's, you know, that's a long-winded answer of saying he serves three masters. He mm-hmm. serves Wall Street, he serves Washington, uh, and to a lesser extent serves the uh, the the people who, who have drunk the Kool-Aid at the Fed and believe that you can turn the dials and pump the levers and manage the economy like a machine. And uh, it's a giant mess for all of us, unfortunately. <laughs> well, just just on that on that uh, giant mess, anecdotally, uh, and I mean, I know this isn't you know kind of a hard um, you know a hard science measurement here, but I'm you know I've been reading a lot of um, of old essays from back in the seventies, you know Joan Didion, and and just kind of re-steeping myself in the the, the zeitgeist of the seventies, which seems to be. Um, enjoying some kind of uh, dubious recrudescence right now, much to the chagrin of, uh, of voters around America, many of whom don't want to relive those days, uh, which we can get to uh, in a little bit. But I'm wondering just what kind of appetite, you know, maximum appetite your average voter who, you know, is at the pump, who's at the grocery store. I mean, how much more can those people be squeezed before you see, I mean, this is a, you know, this is an election year or, you know, uh, uh, not a presidential election year, but it is, you know, a lot of people's jobs are on the line. Um, how much more do you think the American people can take um, before they, you know, they they vote the bums out as they're constantly promising to do, but never seems, <laughs> there never seems to be a shortage of bums in Washington on either side of the aisle, but uh, before we see a kind of massive revolt uh, to the other side. Yeah, I think um, I think it's a good question. I, uh, you know, if you look back, and also I, I don't think it's so much that people uh, are wondering if they can stand uh, an era that's a lot like the 1970s, because a lot of people just don't remember that. They don't, you know, there's a whole generation of investors for sure that didn't haven't lived in a period where interest rates rose. The dollar fell, gold and oil rose at the same time, and there was, you know, persistent um, inflation in consumer prices. So, for for a lot of Americans, this is an entirely new experience, and it it connects in kind of a visceral way that that uh, it's not it's not inflation as an economic concept. It's it's a quality of life and a cost of living concept that my buck doesn't go as far as it used to. And therefore the, you know, my kids aren't eating as well, or we're not eating as often, or we're having to change our behavior because of things we don't entirely understand. Mm-hmm. So that will translate into some political dissatisfaction, which uh, I'll go through this really quick because I think it's, it's interesting. And it's also yeah. my job to think these things through. I, and ultimately I don't think it'll matter, but, but what will happen is unless uh, abortion becomes a massive issue in the midterm elections because of the Supreme Court ruling, and unless there's a, an escalation in um, the war in uh, in Ukraine, and unless China suddenly relaxes its lockdowns and these these vaunted supply chain issues resolve themselves, and you see lower inflation, then you should see. Um, a, a change in the control of both houses of Congress in November. So the Republicans will take the Senate and they'll take the House, uh, but you'll have a Democratic president. So you'll have two more years of Biden. So typically that would that would immediately mean a lame duck presidency that you wouldn't expect to see any major legislative initiatives 
uh, in that time. But then you also see historically this kind of brinksmanship between both parties about who um, who's willing to do the least before the next presidential election so they can blame the other party for not doing anything. So, you know, do they want to run the economy into a ditch and say, look what happened? The Republicans took over Congress and we had a recession, which it looks like we will have this year. So those are all interesting speculations. And you can go back and look at the presidential cycles and the history of the stock market. And there's there's some interesting data, which doesn't really yield any conclusive results. But I would say that's the main point for individual investors is going to the voting booth in November is not going to solve the problem with the dollar because the whoever's in control, uh, whether there's an R at the end of their name or a D at the end of their name, there's almost no willingness by anyone in Washington to, to be realistic about the man, fiscal mismanagement of the country and the long-term problem they've created with the value of the dollar. So uh, that's an, I'm working on a report right now for paid subscribers that we're just calling the dollar report, which says, well, where do we go from here? You know, the dollar has been actually quite strong against other paper currencies this year. Gold has held its own more or less okay. The Russian ruble's done very well, which is in a whole other story. But um, we're trying to focus on the long-term big picture of where we're at historically. And historically, to bring it back to the 70s, this is the end of what we think a monetary regime that began in the 1970s, which is a, a global dollar standard backed by nothing. People expected the United States government to be a good custodian of the value of the dollar, and therefore people were willing to hold it as a uh, central bank asset or as a reserve, uh, as an emergency safe haven kind of money for a crisis. Mm -hmm. Now we have a crisis and we learn that the U.S. government is happy to tell people that money is no good. And uh, they've told that to foreigners and, and especially the Russians, and we think that that money is no good for anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, but the trouble is, you know, this is just a classic asset allocation problem. You'd rather own cash in a liquidity crisis, but when there's eight and a half percent inflation and the central bank is willing to actively uh, destabilize or devalue the currency, then cash is a, is a difficult position to, to hold long-term. So that's a big problem that we're working on right now, but I think, mm -hmm. Uh, like you said, it's sort of a once in a generation problem. And what we want people to realize is that problem is now. You need yeah. to be thinking about that stuff now. And it, and it really is. I mean, this is just, I was, this is a half, once in a half century problem. I mean, we're, we're talking about the beginning of the 70s. And there are obviously so many, uh, you know, so many transpositions that you could make, whether, you know, the, a, a change or at least a shock to the global monetary system, as we saw with Bretton Woods, and arguably uh, are seeing some kind of potential bifurcation of the international monetary system at present with, you know, banning the Russians from SWIFT and there being all kinds of geopolitical, um, you know, murmurings between China, India, Russia. There's a whole lot on the table there that, uh, might go beyond the purview of this particular discussion. But what do you make of, and you, you alluded to this uh, in your remarks just then, what do you make of the fact that the dollar, the, the, the greenback has over probably since we've last spoken, certainly over the last month, has performed extremely well against not only paper currencies, foreign paper currencies, but in particular foreign 
paper commodity-backed currencies. And I'm just planning uh, a trip at the moment with my family where we're going to be. So I'm looking at the exchange rates of kroners, uh, Norwegian kroners and euros and British pounds, um, which have all you know historically performed uh, pretty well against the US dollar. Uh, and I'm I'm happy to report that my holiday is getting cheaper uh, every week as the US dollar uh, seems to hold up very well against those currencies. So how do we make sense of that seeming disconnect? How do you uh, purposefully inflate a, a, a currency away or devalue it, let's say, by 8.5% a year and still have it stack up strongly against uh, against these other fiat promissory notes? Yeah, it's a great question, and because it, it seems counterintuitive when people look at it and say, "How could the dollar be getting stronger when all these horrible things are mm-hmm. are going on at the at the ground level?" So, I think there are two answers. Uh, the first and obvious answer is interest rates or expectations for interest rates and the differential in those expectations, and that's that's a little bit um, uh, curious as well because. The market, the futures market, thinks that based on what the Fed has said from its meeting notes and its public statements, that it will raise its benchmark interest rate to you know two and a half, three percent by the end of the year. It hasn't done anything yet. Mm-hmm. It, has, it hasn't reduced the balance sheet. It hasn't begun running it off. It's just said that it's intending to combat inflation, and therefore monetary policy and interest uh, will be tighter and interest rates will be higher. So that's part of the move in the currency markets is anticipating that there's going to be a yield on the dollar again, and on a relative basis, it's more attractive. There's another element. I guess there's three elements, but the second is less interesting to me because I don't think it's true, but it's a sort of safe haven Mm -hmm. bid that that, um, when people don't quite know what's going on, they kind of run home to mama. And uh, the dollar is still mama for now. So there's there's that element of... Mm -hmm of uh, behavior. I think the other, which probably is the most interesting and, and to me, the most um, most explanatory and predictive is it's a liquidity issue. So one of the things people can look at if they haven't had a chance to is go back and look at this uh, theory uh, by a former federal bank, a federal reserve governor named John Exter called Exter's pyramid. And it's, uh, I like it because I'm a visual learner and it, it, it reduces financial markets and, and asset class decisions to a triangle. <laughs> it's an inverted triangle. <laughs> and the, the idea is his liquidity pyramid is sort of at the top end of the liquidity pyramid in financial markets. You have very large asset classes in terms of their nominal size, but they're far removed from real value. So their, their value is based on lots of variables. So for example, in today's markets, at the top of his pyramid would be the derivatives markets, interest rate derivatives, uh, currency derivatives, those sorts of things. So there, there's a huge liquid market in financial transactions, but the val- the underlying value of those securities or instruments is related to something else that's far away. So we kind of saw that, for example, back in 2007 and eight with the um, residential mortgage-backed securities and that whole that whole bundling of mortgages was an example of a derivative. So pyramid and, seems to uh, be a good uh, a, a good shape when talking <laughs> about this. It's a pyramid scheme. So as you move down the the pyramid, the the type of asset becomes harder, um, maybe a little bit more liquid, 
but it's smaller in size. Mm -hmm. So you would get corporate, the corporate bond market, uh, the government bond market, the equity market. And it's at the narrow end of the pyramid, you get cash, which actually in, in terms of the amount of cash that, that physically exists and circulates is small relative to the size of bank accounts and savings. And then at the bottom of his pyramid, which is the whole point I'm going through all this is gold. So it's the least liquid. It has the least utility uh, in terms of its economic use, um, but it's the most stable and it's the hardest asset. Now, other people might claim that today, if you were redoing that pyramid, you'd have to add digital assets in there somewhere. But in terms of size, they're very small. You know, they were one and a half trillion or maybe three trillion at the peak. Maybe they're half that now. So uh, they're interesting, but but I wouldn't say material to this discussion um, unless we we're going to just talk about money. So the whole point is that in a liquidity crisis, so we, we started with a valuation crisis where valuations got reset from very high to somewhat more realistic. But the whole context of the thing is that as interest rates go up, the availability of credit and, and cash goes down, liquidity drains from the entire pyramid, and money moves from the top to the bottom. Mm-hmm. And it gets destroyed at the top, and it finds safety at the bottom. It doesn't mean uh, it goes up. Like For example, gold in dollar terms is not going up right now. But our my view is that, that uh, gold isn't going anywhere. It's the dollar that's moving relative to gold. So I think that the the dollar's apparent strength is only apparent if you understand it in that context, that there's a Mm -hmm. liquidity preference for for US dollars for lots of reasons. And compared to other currencies on an interest rate basis, it, it, it looks like it might be more attractive. But we're not focused on any of that in the long term. We're trying to focus on how people can can de-hedge or hedge their dollar risk because we think ultimately. I think ultimately anyway, that that what you said is what's going on is that the our financial authorities realize that that one of two things has to happen. They can either allow inflation to go out of control to, to sort of deflate the value of all this government debt, and they have to pay a political price with, with high consumer price inflation, or they can allow the bond market to collapse. Um, so it's either the currency or the bond market. And our view is that it's it's probably going to be the currency. Uh, and so for people who save in that currency, who invest in that currency, who are going to retire in that currency, then that becomes the, the number one issue to to try and solve. So that's that's why we're working right now on the dollar report, which is a, a big job. But but that's yeah. our understanding. A big undertaking. Yeah. So you, you mentioned uh, gold there. Is there... And, and of course, in addition to the dollar report, which you're working on, uh, Tom has his Dow Gold report up on uh, on our Substack, which again, if you haven't visited, is bonaprivateresearch.substack.com. So uh, head on over there for all the research that Dan's uh, underscoring here. Um, it, a lot of people have thought that, uh, you know, in times of great uncertainty, and it would be, it would be difficult to imagine I guess a time of of more uncertainty coming out of a global pandemic, um, and in particular the you know various uh, governmental responses to that pandemic, and now we have the threat, maybe again a once in a generation threat where people are talking about 
you know, nukes and, um, you know, something that may have seemed unimaginable just a few years ago. It's hard to imagine more uncertainty. Most people think that when that happens, okay, people, you know, there may be a flight to, um, you know, mama dollar, as you've, as you've described, uh, or many people think daddy gold is, uh, you know, to take the other parental, um, uh, safety uh, instrument are you looking for there to be you know obviously as we speak here uh, gold has underperformed relative to the dollar in the in the past uh, month or two uh, are you looking for there to be some point at which dollars start cycling into gold as uh, as a safe haven asset yeah i think so i, I think you know, I, th- I think that discussion is whether investors, a lot of investors, including retail investors, will again see gold as an investment rather than as a m- method of saving or a, a vehicle of saving or, or capital preservation. And, you know, obviously that has and does happen in in um, precious metals bull markets is that the price action in the underlying commodity, gold or silver in this case, attracts retail investors who then bid up uh, prices of mining stocks and and uh, you see the cash for gold phenomena on TV where people are encouraged to bring in their grandmother's jewelry and trade it in for cash. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think this is an inter- there's an interesting analog with this, with what's happened in the crypto space, which I'm not an expert on and, and uh, I should qualify my statement and say, uh, but I have noticed that there's there there are two types of people that I've noticed. There's the people who expected to get rich in crypto by buying low and selling high, so they were never really uh, enthusiasts or or even understood or cared about the idea that this was a different kind of money or a different kind of saving or a different kind of asset. They just wanted to get rich in dollar terms, so mm. they could buy a Lamborghini or a new house or leverage a house, you know, any of that stuff. So. This was just a speculative vehicle for them. They now, saw it was going people, up. They wanted to get on board. That's, that's yeah, as and simple that's, as that. That's it, the whole fun. Right? Yeah, and I, and I think that that used to, that that is the case typically in in um, in bubbles, which we may get again in mining stocks related to gold and silver. Is you'll get a huge attraction of of people who are not interested in the monetary discussion. They just mm. want to get rich. Mm-hmm. Or they need to get rich because you know they're retiring soon, or they lost a bunch of money in the stock market. So, you know that that'll be really interesting, and we, it's a good thing that we have a lot of friends who focus on mining stocks, companies that are currently generating great cash flow. They're returning it to shareholders, and if the price goes higher for gold or silver, they'll they'll do really well. But that's really not our focus uh, on our private research right now. So Tom and I probably have slightly different view on this, but I would say. I don't know when I would would sell my gold, but I wouldn't really care about the dollar price uh, on a short-term basis. In fact, yeah. I don't care about the dollar price. I view it as a form of saving, as a way of, of um, getting money out of one type of financial asset and into another. Tom's view is slightly different in the sense that he thinks, and I think history shows that there are these major rotations out of asset classes. Yeah. So out of gold and into stocks, into stocks, out of gold. So that's the whole point of the Dow gold ratio is, to save in gold until stocks are cheap. And then when stocks are cheap to move out of gold and back into stocks. And um, I think uh, as an investment strategy, that'll work uh, because it has in the past. So that's why we, that's one of the major research reports that we publish. 
But for me, I, I think at some level, I don't think the retail investors, I think they disappear in bear markets because mm. they're by definition, the marginal investor. They end up getting wiped out because they they uh, buy high and they sell low. They didn't have a lot of money to begin with. The transaction costs eat them up and the lack of uh, quality information tends to blow them up really quickly as well. And that's what's happening right now. So that money's not going to be left. It's not going to be around to drive precious metals prices higher. So that's not the reason for owning gold bullion. The, the reason is on a long-term basis, the dollar is, is being systematically devalued by the central bank. And we think uh, gold, whether coins or bullion, is the best store of value uh, during a transition like that. So there's a couple different angles on it, but, um, I think that's where we're at right now with it. Right. Um, you mentioned energy before just to kind of flip between the commodity, uh, sectors and just by way of segueing into your, um, your trade of the decade, which, uh, you, Bill and Tom have concocted, uh, essentially long energy without giving too much away. Um, and, I guess the de facto, uh, even though it's not strictly a pair trade, um, it, it would necessarily uh, in some way, I guess, be short the dollar uh, just because of the fact that you got out of the dollar and into uh, and into energy. Um, but do you want to give us a quick uh, sort of update on how that's going and speaking about cycling, speaking about these cycles we've had now, um, you mentioned um, with a company by chart, which I'm, I might put up below this uh, recording on on our Substack page, uh, a chart depicting energy having just recently overtaken tech as um, as a, a sector in the market. It's now just started to outperform as it's uh, as oil has risen and uh, and the big tech generals have. Have kind of uh, beat a disorderly retreat. Uh, where are we in in that cycle? I know we're only a couple of years into it, but it seems like uh, it's been a, a roaring trade, uh, even with an at this early at this early read. Yeah, I think there's a, there's. Well, I guess I'm and I'm, I'm obeying the rule of three today, or some sort of trinitarian <laughs> principle, because everything has three aspects to it, but. That when we when we first researched that and published it in January of last year, it was really a cyclical argument that said that uh, that uh, the energy sector, especially on the S and P five hundred, had underperformed for ten years, and the technology sector was the best performing sector for ten years. So just just mean reversion and market cycles would show that that was unlikely to be the case for the next ten years. So if you drilled down to it into a little bit deeper, you saw there was other evidence of that. One example was that I think in the early 80s when the oil price peaked or when the oil price was high, um, the energy sector energy sector companies as a percentage of the S&P market cap were much larger. I don't think they were 30%, but they were more they were somewhere between 13 and 23 if I recall correctly. But the point was they were a bigger part of the real economy and they were a bigger part of the stock market because oil was a bigger part of the world. Mm -hmm. A lot changed in the, uh, over the next 30 years. So by uh, the end of 2020, tech companies, uh, you know, I think there were just five of them that made up 25% of the market cap of the S&P 500. And of course, you know, at the peak in March, or it was really earlier in January, Apple became a $3 trillion company briefly. You had the race to $2 trillion with Amazon and Microsoft. And then you had 
before it fell, you had Meta or Facebook knocking on the door. So those were just on that basis. We just said, wow, energy is way underinvested in and technology is way overinvested in. And that actually translated into capital investment. And by that, I mean the uh, the energy companies after the oil price peaked in, in 2014 and, and then crashed in 2011 in that whole period, they were just starved of capital. They, they, they didn't invest in new projects. They didn't invest in new supply. And there was a lot of reasons for that. One was there was a lot of oil. The oil price was going down. The amount of regulation to explore for and bring new oil and gas into production was going up. So it was discouraged from a political point of view, a regulatory point of view. And then you had clowns like Larry Fink and Michael Bloomberg who were saying, or and even Jim Cramer in 2020 saying, these things are uninvestable for moral reasons, for climate reasons, and for economic reasons that we should just stop investing in oil and gas companies. And some public pensions have done that too. They said, well, they're not carbon friendly, so we're not going to give these industries capital. So all that meant is that these industries, the the supply of oil is not growing (laughs) and the demand for it reached pre-pandemic levels and then went past it. So look Mm -hmm. at the oil price right now, despite uh, despite the you know the the prospect of a recession in the United States, and despite a lockdown in China's biggest cities, and despite a war from the, one of the world's largest oil exporters, I say despite. I mean that contributes to it. Its price action has kind of stood out. So that that confirmed our thesis that um, that this whole idea that the world was going to suddenly run on electric cars and that we weren't gonna, we weren't going to use oil, gas, and coal anymore. Uh, was was a marketing slogan. It was a political idea. It had, there were other objectives going on. So there was a lot of reasons that we thought um, that the, that trade was going to be a good one. The question right now is, as you pointed out, we think that sort of easy money has been made, that, that they were really, really undervalued or mispriced last year. They're less mispriced than they are now. But uh, we think that because it's a long-term trend. In other words, it's going to take years to reallocate capital to the sector, to go out and find more oil and gas, to build pipelines, to build refineries. We think there's more money to be made. It just means you have to do more research and find out where. Mm. So is it upstream? Is it downstream? Is it pipeline companies? Is it refineries? That's something Tom's been looking at quite closely. Um, And uh, so, so we're going to continue to look at it, but the trade itself is really simple, and just based on that thesis. That, and maybe that's probably the the broader point is that we think something changed in the last year to where this idea of soft power or growth being the most valuable thing in the market has changed. That real assets like coal, oil, gas, and gold, those are more valuable now, uh, and they're the source of both political power. And and real earnings for companies. So that's a kind of change in leadership in the market from the companies that produce real assets uh, are in the ascendant, and the companies that produce future revenue growth, like Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, are are in the decline. Yeah, and it, it seems uh, that that kind of delineation between um, the the real world delivering real assets to real customers with real companies that produce real profits as opposed to companies with you know just unimaginable um, and as it turns out very unprofitable uh, <laughs> growth projections 
um, yield the kind of opportunities that Tom's looking for with his sort of tactical trades, um, you know, special sort of niche situations in the market in in particular pockets of the market where um, where uh, people haven't been looking for a little while, and uh, he sent around just. Uh, just an update on the performance of the stocks that are on the watch list, and um, and they're they're doing handsomely, especially given the fact that the uh, broader market is has been more or less bleeding red for for the year. So that's all that's all good stuff. Uh, Dan, I'm going to be up in uh, in the US in June. We've definitely got to get together, and um, or rather July, actually in July, be in Europe in June, uh, spending my very powerful greenbacks uh, while they're while they've still got some staying power and then uh, and then in July in the US so we'll have to get together uh, up your way to record another one of these in person if we can yeah that would be great and I would just close by saying I think uh, for us right now Tom's getting ready to publish his next monthly issue he does one a month which is a sort of fuller investigation of where we're at and we discuss those things and I think we think two things. This reset in valuations has further to go, so things will get cheaper on a valuation basis. But now, uh, based on the recent earnings reports of companies like Walmart and Amazon, what people have to factor in is the prospect that companies are just going to be earning less money in a recession. They have higher energy costs, they have higher transportation costs, and they have a consumer who's facing these higher costs at the retail level who has some disposable income, but is spending more money through their credit card. And so we think, you know, there's that factor of, of has the market priced in a recession. And in that case, you know, when you have a deflation in financial assets and a recession at the same time, it does change a little bit your, your tactical strategy of where the money's going to be made. So it's a, it's a month to month thing. You know, we have a long-term focus, but it's a, in some ways it's a really fascinating environment to be trying to, to connect the dots, which is what we do, and then try to avoid the big loss, which we think we're in the middle of, and then try to get to the other side of the crisis, which we think is a long-term crisis. So very busy times, but we'll have time for uh, lunch and um, a bottle of wine for sure. All right, Dan. Uh, as you say, we're, we're early on in this. Uh, we're early, early on potentially in this cycle. There's a lot more work to do. So uh, finally, do head over to our Substack. I've, uh, this is my third repetition of this, sticking with your rule of three today, Dan. <laughs> it's bonnerprivateresearch.substack.com. Check out all of Dan and Tom's excellent research and, of course, Bill Bonner's daily missives. Um, and we hope to see you there. Dan, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, I really Joel. appreciate it. Cheers.